It's very likely that someone very close to you right now has been directly impacted by 30 seconds of what happened last Saturday night at 1 a.m. in the Oregon District. Um, as you would expect with a community our size, we are um, one degree separated from a lot of the things that took place. And, you know, from Ryan Wilhite was, was Logan Turner's football coach, to the surgeon who performed the surgery on the young man that kept him alive was here last night, and he's an absolute wreck. Uh, he was an Iraqi war surgeon, and, and it just brought back all that trauma. And we, we realized, you know, that this, as we sang so vocally this morning, this is a place to where we find healing, and, and we declare that, that we believe hope is alive, that, that even in the darkest of times, that there's this transcendent hope that heals. And so today, it is very important. Trust me, friends. I can tell you what we Americans are worst at. I mean, you want to know what it is? In my humble opinion, grieving. We either anesthetize our losses or we replace them. And we just skim right on through. And then those feelings come out sideways later. And so as you go through this, I know we have, I've, I've had a couple parents, three or four parents tell me that their child doesn't want to go to school. And it's just really important that we talk through this together as a community. In our five S's of spiritual transformation, what is the what is the S that has, this has to do with being a community? What is it? Support. And so today we'll have pastors up here after the service. If you need to just come and talk and say, hey, I have some questions and I'm trying to process this. If you'd rather be in a less, um, you know, a, a different environment, we'll have pastors out there at the, at the information counter. If you'd rather go out there and then and, and people can pray with you in the prayer room, uh, pray with you up here and just talk it out. It's very, very important. It's very, very important. And that we continue to not only pray, but we continue. For me, I know, uh, it, it has a direct impact on, on what I see as a priority for Southbrook in the future. And uh, so we, we just all have reactions to this, and we want you to be aware of that. C.S. Lewis said something years ago. Well, he said a lot of things. I quote from him a lot. But he said this, he said that if Christ is who he said he is, then Christianity is of supreme importance. If he's not who he said he is, then Christianity is of no importance. But what Christianity cannot be is of moderate importance. What Christ cannot be in a life is of moderate importance. And today I want to speak into this. Now, we are in the final of this series of these letters to these churches in Asia Minor. And today we come to the church that every preacher who's ever led a congregation is so glad God put this in the Bible. Because this is the address to the church at Laodicea. And what I'm about to, to lead us through verse by verse is a communication that has been used to shame people into being fervent followers of Jesus and volunteer in children's ministry like no other passage in the whole Bible. And we're, we're going to dig deeply into this today. 
And we're going to accept that this letter is, is different from all other six that, that we looked at through Revelation. All six, if you, did you notice this if you were with us? All six of the letters follow this outline. Praise, Jesus says, hey, here's what I, way to go. The problem, here's something I want to address. And then the promise. But if you will step into this, here's, here's where I'm going to show myself. And the only exception to that outline, that progression, is Laodicea. Laodicea is where Jesus, the outline is, problem, 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 and promise. It is a rebuke. It's just a straight-out rebuke. Now, how many of you ever have been rebuked by a coach or a teacher in your lifetime? Okay, like, like they got on your arse. Okay, they got on you, and it's not cussing if you say it like that. It, you, it, they, they got on you. How many of you ever got, you got, you've gotten corrected, you know? You've gotten passionately corrected. How many of you liked it? Very seldom. How many of you look back sometimes, and those very people that were so, they demanded the best from you, and at the time you didn't like them, you look back and you know, oh my gosh, they brought out the best in me. They pushed me past my comfort zone. My college coach, Tony Wallingford, I was his whipping boy. He was on me all the time. I remember one time he took me, yanked me out of a game. He goes, are you a senior? Do seniors act like that? You know, it's just like, boom. And I look back on this now and... Tony was one of the best things that ever happened to me. Actually, we kind of deal with this stuff in player's box, as a matter of fact. But he was one of the best things that ever happened to me. Well, here's the thing. We are now in a culture. Remember a few months ago when I said that Notre Dame sociologist Christian Smith says that the, the major religion in America now is not Buddhism, Hinduism, and Christianity. That's not, that's not the predominant religion. Remember this. The predominant religion in America now is what he calls moralistic therapeutic deism. Moralistic therapeutic deism. In other words, there's morals involved, it's an ethical system, but it's therapeutic that, 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 that Jesus is my whoopee. Jesus is my whoopee. And, and uh, did you never see the movie Mr. Mom? Come on. Did you? How many of you have never seen Mr. Mom with Michael Keaton? Oh my gosh, what a poverty of your life. But Jesus is my whoopee. Jesus' job is to comfort me and make me happy. That's God's job. And when I'm not happy, I turn to him so he'll make me happy again. And then you read a passage like this where, man, Jesus at that moment was not the Laodiceans' whoopee. He wasn't. He was their coach. Or he was their kurios, their Lord. He was saying, now this is... So here we're going to dive into this. Now here's the struggle I had with this this week. I struggled with this because this is the section where he says, you need, to, you need to get your stuff together and you need to be passionate again. And I've been going through stuff this year where right now I'm weak. I'm weak. And so all week long I'm going, I'm not the person to speak into people to say, get fired up for Jesus right now. And then last night, I delivered this talk, and I realized I'm right where he wants me to be. 
Because first of all, if I give a talk about getting fired up for Jesus and I'm doing well, I'm dangerous. I'm dangerous. I just totally plow through those of you who go, wait a minute, I'm weak right now. And I'm an introvert. So I just, you know, if I am fired up, it's not going to show, okay? So, uh, I mean, help me here. And then all week long, I, I, I was struggling through, like, so, so look at this, look at this, listen to this. So in Romans 12, uh, verse 5, Paul goes, he says like this, he says this, he goes, Never be lacking in spiritual fervor, but keep your passion for the Lord, serving the Lord. Keep your zeal. Never be lacking in zeal. Keep your spiritual fervor. So by that verse, who's responsible for your spiritual temperature? Who is? It's not me. It's not your small group leader. It's not your spouse. You are responsible for your spiritual passion and monitoring that and managing that. But then... I look at his most autobiographical section. The same guy wrote these words in 2 Corinthians eleven twenty nine. 29. This really autobiographical section. And he says this. He says, he, he's going through his, his sense of vulnerability. And Paul goes, he, he says this. He goes, he goes, who feels weak? And I do not feel weak too. So how do you have passion when at the same time you're feeling weak? Is anybody here feeling weak today? And I realize this is exactly where, I think this is where God wants me as we give this talk today in our community, we have this moment together, is, is I struggle. Like my faith in Jesus isn't strong right now. It's not. It's strong enough for me to keep obeying him. But I'm not in a, I love Jesus, yes I do, I love Jesus. How about you moment? I'm not having that right now. And does that, does my feeling express the main component of my followership? Because in our, in our culture right now, we do that. How are you in your, in your faith in Christ? Well, I'm feeling it. And then we say, okay, then I'm good. That, that, that emotion is not the barometer of your fervor. And I'll explain what I think is. And I come to you today as one who's weak. Is that Okay. I'm just, I'm, I, I come to you and I was like, okay, here we are. And I, I think you'll see why. So let's dig in. Okay, let's dig into this. This is, a, this is not hip-hop happy day at Southbrook. Okay? <laughs> write, John, write to Laodicea. Now you got to know this. You're going to see this. Laodicea was one of the wealthiest cities in the Roman Empire. It's in, well, Turkey today. You can actually still go to the ancient site of Laodicea and drink from their spring waters, which is really important in light of this, this letter. Laodicea was very wealthy. How wealthy? In 68 AD, when an earthquake struck Laodicea and leveled the place, Rome said, we will send disaster aid. And Laodicea said, no, thank you very much. We, we're good. We've got this covered. We don't need your, we need, we don't need your financial aid. Because it was so wealthy. In 70 AD, when Jerusalem was leveled by the Romans, 75 Hundred Laodicean Jews sent 22 pounds of gold to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. 22 pounds of gold, which had a, a higher value than it, even it does today. So it was, I mean, wealthy, wealthy town. And so you had wealthy Christians making up this church. Hmm, I wonder, do you know any wealthy churches made up of wealthy? Do you know that? Well, I'm looking at one. I'm looking at one. Just go into our parking lot. I'm looking at one. 
Now, do you see how this gets used to shame people? You wealthy South Brookers. Yeah, it, it does. It gets shamed. So, like, you're on guard now. Oh, my gosh. Is this the message we're honored to be told? Don't be rich because you can't be rich and love Jesus. No, you're not. But I'm telling you, you may get a rebuke today because everyone here who had the capacity to drive here is wealthy. I know people who have three homes and six cars, and they don't consider themselves wealthy. But everyone, if you, in America, if you have the capacity to, to drive here today, your spiritual journey is affected by this rebuke, whether you realize it or not today. So listen, to the angel of the church, the messenger of the church, God's yes, that's what Jesus is. He is God's yes, the faithful and accurate witness, the first of God's creation says this to you. I know you inside and out, and I find little to my liking. Oh, jeez. Now, can, can, would you put that as I would on my top 10 list of things that I don't ever want to hear from Jesus? Right? You know, everybody has, hey guys, what is the top thing you never want to hear from your wife? Can we talk? You never want to hear that. You never want to hear those words. Can we talk? Parents, what are the, what's the top thing you never want to hear from your child? Mom and dad, can you sit down? You never want to hear those words. Anybody here with me? I never want to hear these words from Jesus. I know you, and I don't like what's going on. You're not cold. You're not hot. Far better than to be either cold or hot. Now, it's interesting. People say, oh, you know, Jesus doesn't want us cold to him. Actually, there are people that have a facade of Christianity about them enough to where they do damage. And it would be better if they were an atheist. It would be better if they didn't have the bumper sticker on their car and still give people the finger in traffic. Yeah, that would be better, right? That would be better. If they just said, I'm an avowed anti-Jesus person. But I, don't, I, have, I have the Darwinian bumper sticker on my car. I don't have, you know, it'd be better. But he said, you're in between. Far better to either cold or hot and you're stale. And the word frequently used here in a lot of translations is you're lukewarm, you're stagnant. Now, here's what's interesting. Everything in this passage, it's another reason why I believe it's true, is a direct correlation to Laodicea. And the first reference is this, the water. The Laodicea was very wealthy, except it had one problem. It, it didn't have water. And so the Laodiceans made a contract with Rome to build an aqueduct, and they would pipe the water in seven miles from Hierapolis. And it would go through a three-mile journey through old piping, clay piping, for seven miles. Now, how pure do you think that water was? Or for three miles. How pure do you think it was? It wasn't pure. It was awful. It had a sulfur taste and smell to it. By the time it got to Laodicea, it, it, was, it, was, it was lukewarm and people who weren't used to the water would do, guess what they would do when they drank it? They would spit it out of their mouth. If you weren't used to it, you know, it, you would spit it out of your mouth. And so he says, you make me want to vomit. Whoa, there's another thing. I never want Jesus to say to me, okay, that you make me want to spit it out. Now, I, have a, I know a pastor who, who did a sermon on this, and a great title. He called the title of this, The Great Expectorations. 
look it up if you don't know what that word means. Now, it's interesting. So he says this, whoa. Now, you brag, I'm rich. And they were. I've got it made. I need nothing from anyone. Thank you very much, Rome. We don't need your disaster aid. Oblivious that, in fact, you're not as rich as you think you are in the things that matter. You're a pitiful blind beggar. Why is that important? Do you know what Laodicea was known for? It was known for its pharmaceutical innovation. It was known for particularly an eye salve that had been produced in Laodicea that helped people with their eyesight. It exported eye medicine. And he says, you're blind. And then he says this, you're threadbare and homeless. Do you know what Laodicea? To this day, actually, you can go to Laodicea, and they're still, in that area of Turkey, they're known for their wool and linen innovation, their, the clothing industry. And in that day, it was true. Laodicea was known for its clothing that was produced through wool, and it was, it was very sophisticated, as you can think about something that's in Turkey today, very beautiful. And, and he says, those of you who, who are so wealthy from clothing industry, you're You're naked. Here's what I want you to do. Buy your gold from me. Gold that's been through the refiner's fire. I mean, what he's talking about is the stuff of my life is what will make you really rich. Then you'll be rich. Next verse. Buy your clothes from me. Clothes designed in heaven. This, this is a reference that, you know this, this is all, Revelation is all this. It uses imagery all throughout the scriptures that we see. Clothe yourself in Christ. In other words, be dress for, the, dress for Christ every day. Clothe, when you get dressed, don't just worry about your makeup and your clothing. Put yourself in Christ over you. You've gone around half naked long enough and notice half, there's this, this lukewarm, right? You're, you're kind of in, you're kind of out, you're bored at a Bible study, you're guilty at a bar, you're just, you know, you're, you're, you're like the guy who was asked what his favorite color is, and he said plaid, you know, I mean, you're kind of, you're just, you're just, you know, you're not sure, you're kind of in this. And buy medicine for your eyes from me so you can see, really see. Jesus said, I am the truth, I am reality. You, when you see life through me, you see life. As it is. The people I love, I call to account. How many of you have ever been rebuked by a teacher or a coach? You know why you were? It's because that teacher or coach cared for you. You, you needed to worry when a teacher or a coach doesn't ever correct you or ask the best out of you. Because that means they don't care about you. And he says, I call you to account. Prod and correct and guide so that you'll live at your best. Up on your feet. About face. Run after God. Look at me. I stand at the door. I knock. Anybody with us last weekend when we had a kind of a door picture, right? We're going to come back to this. If you hear me call and open the door, I'll come right in and sit down and supper with you. It's really fascinating. I mean, you can hear Jesus' passion. I mean, you're, you're talking about the guy. And when he saw Gentile people being being discriminated against because they couldn't worship in the court of the Gentiles because Jewish business people had set up shop on the court of the Gentiles and ripping people off. And Jesus came in one day and he said, I'm flipping some tables today, boys. I'm shutting this business down. Whoa. Jesus is not just the Lamb of God. He is the Lion of Judah, right? So he knows when to go, oh, wait a minute. This is unacceptable. 
And this is directly at the core of what we are passionate about in life, right? Now, here's what's interesting about this. Psychologists have an understanding they know about every human being, and I call it this. They have some fancy name for it, but I call it this. A comprehensive personal passion. Everybody here has a comprehensive personal passion. In other words, you have something that's deep in you for why you do what you do. Everybody here has it. It may be out of wounding, it may be out of grace, it may be out of love, it may be out of bitterness and hurt, but you have a comprehensive personal passion. There are sub-passions under that that drives who you are. And what Jesus is getting at here is, he says, I don't want to just be a resident. I want to be the president. I don't want to just be a a category in your life and I'm your whoopee and when you're hurting you come and you grab your whoopee uh, you'll drive the car thank you very much and when you're crashing Jesus take the wheel right but other than that thank you very much I don't need your help life's pretty good and the tendency to become less passionate about Christ is always in direct proportion to how things are going right that when things are how many of you have this is a church we can be honest How many of you have ever drifted away from God when things were going well? Yeah, you just kind of drift. I remember as a little guy, my mom would read Bible stories to me at night, and and, and we'd always go through this Israel cycle of, as, as, as God would love them and say, Israel, you are mine, and then, and then they, would, they would stray, and they would be sent into captivity, and then God would say, come back to me, Israel, and they would come back, and they would be, oh, we love you, God, and, and, and then he would bless them, and then they would stray, and I remember as a little guy going, don't they see the correlation here? Well, we don't. We, we don't. So when we are living a Laodicean prosperity that's when we tend to get real lukewarm about God. The minute life hurts, that's, you know, woo. most change happens when we watch enough where we want to, we graced enough where we get to, but, but 90% of the time, change happens when we hurt enough where we have to. But the pain of staying the same exceeds the pain of change. And so that's why Thomas Carlyle was right when he said this. He said, for every person who handles adversity, uh, prosperity well, I'll give you 100 who handle adversity well. He says, very few people can handle a full cup and God. So when life's going well and our comprehensive personal passion probably isn't God. It probably isn't Christ. And everybody has one. Even the person here today that you say, oh no, he's passionless. He's passionless about nothing. He's passionate about nothing. So everybody here is passionate about something even if it's nothing. That's still driving your behavior, even if you're a couch value. I remember the guy who said, I get up each morning and dust off my wits, pick up the paper and read the obits. If my name's not there, I know I'm not dead, so I eat a good breakfast and go back to bed. That guy's passionate about nothing. Okay? So all of us here are. I've told you before, if Christ had not intersected my life, my funeral would have been about all about Ohio State. And I have done funerals for people that their casket was adorned in scarlet and gray, and it has been given me, oh my gosh, that would, that would have been me. Because I grew up, my comprehensive personal passion. So Jesus is getting this, and he says, I, I'm, I'm not going to compromise on this. I want, it, 
You say you're a Christian? Oh, then there's no half in. 95% devotion to me is 5% short. <laughs> yeah, this is what he's saying. No half clothed in me. No facade on the outside, but on the inside, you really, you really haven't let me in. No one foot in, one foot out, no plaid, no, none of that. I want to be your comprehensive personal passion. So I got to think of this week, how I, I think in my state of weakness, and yet there are people depending on me to be passionate about Jesus. How, for me, I'm in my 35th year of church leadership where I've had to, throughout many pains, I've had to maintain a homeostasis of personal passion for Jesus. And like, I'm human, so I go through these phases, but there has to be some management. And what I, as I thought through this this week, I thought I realized that my, if you want passion for Jesus, it is directly related to one four-letter word. It is directly connected to pain. All sustainable passion is connected to pain. Either our own or when we observe shootings in our city. It, it all is. Now here's the thing. If that's the case, how many of you ever experienced pain? Raise your hand. Yeah. Well then why aren't we all passionate about Jesus? Oh my gosh, if pain produces passion, I ought to be Mother Teresa, man. I ought to be at the head of the pack for Jesus, then why not? And this is where the Laodicean letter is so critical for all of us. I am very wealthy materially. I don't know about you, but I'm very wealthy. You know, I have three houses. The one I live in, the two that I built that are on my desk, and, uh, you know, but I'm wealthy. And so, why aren't we all? Here's, here's why. Pain plus prosperity allows us to be passive. You see, what prosperity does is it numbs us to pain. Most of us have enough in life where if we live without God for one day, we're still okay, aren't we? I don't know, there are very many of you that were looking for your next, your one, you came in here today, you're wondering where your next meal is coming from. No, what happens, the, the, here's the, why Jesus said, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a very wealthy person to surrender to my kingdom. Why? It's because prosperity allows us to be happy pagans. Even when we have the bumper stickers on our car, even when we're churchgoers, even when we call ourselves Christians, it allows us to numb pain. And this is how we in America use prosperity is it's a distraction or it's a deadening effect so that we don't have to feel pain. And in that case, the moralistic therapeutic deism fits with this because Jesus is my whoopee and Jesus has made me wealthy and this is a danger. It's just a danger. It do, or wealthy people were submitted fully to Christ. There are in this church, there are people who are way more ahead of me in their living with, for Jesus and with Jesus and Jesus in them than I am. And they're, they're ten times wealthier than I am. Why? It's because of this. Pain plus Christ equals passion. 
So when Christ comes in and he affects you at such a level, for example, Jesus has made it to where you're not as materially wealthy as you would have been had you not met Jesus. Like, there are tons of people in this church that are not as wealthy as they would have been had they not surrendered to Christ. Now, I know, I mean, I preach it. When you give to Christ, he gives back, and yeah, all that. But the fact of the matter is, it's not always a cause and effect. It's not a direct cause and effect. Some of you are going to receive your reward in heaven. Uh, It's just not a direct cause and effect. I give Jesus a dollar, he gives me back two. Who doesn't like this deal? It's not always. That that when, when you take that, which can allow you to be your own God, Laodicean, your wealth, to the degree that you say, I have no need of anyone, We say independently wealthy. When Jesus affects that, this is when your pain meets Christ and he turns it into fuel. And I'll just, for me, that's what he did with me. So for example, when, just simple things, when the pain of rejection, I grew up in a very shame-based family, when that met Christ, I can't stand, I, I could never be a part of a church that excludes people because they're, they have alcohol in their breath. Because they, like I, I wanted to be a part of a place that, yeah, we have, we have guide, we have rules, we have truth. But it would be a place where the broken person feels welcome. And it pains me when people come to our church and they don't feel that way. That's out of of my own pain that I was in a family that was very shamed. And that met Christ, and it's a sustainable passion for me. And I could get into more on this, but the key to passion, now passion is like fuel. I can take take a gallon of gasoline and I can put it in a car, and that car is a drag racer, right? And it just, boom, it fuels that car for 3.2 seconds down a straightaway. It's explosive. I can take fuel and I can put it in a rocket and it launches that rocket into the sky. That's one way fuel can be used. That same fuel can be put in my car and it can, that gallon will last about 35 miles. That same fuel can be put in that rocket in the, in the fuel, the booster, the part of it that sustains that rocket in orbit. And so how Christ affects us is that when we initially surrender to him, he, he like, oh my gosh, I've had this life change and this is exciting and I love this. My past is forgiven, my present is empowered, my future is secure, and I have this passion now. And it's exciting, but then it matures. And for me today, my passion for Christ is mostly that which keeps me in orbit. Like right now, I'm weak. But that doesn't mean I'm not passionate. It just means I'm, I'm not emotionally feeling it. But you know what I'm doing is every day I'm getting up and I'm saying this, Jesus, come into my life today. Come into my life today. Here, here's what I want to tell you. Here's what I want you to hear, Southbrook. That to be hot for Jesus is, is not wear your Jesus on your sleeve and drive everyone crazy. That person is hot. Remember, you know, the guy, somebody comes into the movie theater and they say, is that seat saved? And you say, no, but the question is, are you saved, brother? Boy, that person's fervent for Jesus. You know, they're a witness. Well, they turn everybody off. 
And there are some people who would be better followers of Jesus if they were colder. I, I really think this. But it doesn't mean that. It, what it means is this. Are you depressed? Give him that heart. Give him your depressed heart. Are you angry? Give him your angry heart. Today. Let him into that heart. Are you bitter? Are you weak? Who does not feel weak that I also do not feel weak? Then Paul, let Jesus come into that heart today. You see, because here's what I think. For me, this is just for me. What being fervent for Jesus means is that on this day, I love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, even if my heart is weak. Even if my heart is depressed. Even if my heart is angry, I love God with all that heart, without that soul, with all that strength, with all that mind. And then, the second part is I love my neighbor as I love myself. That's what it means to be fervent for Jesus. Today. How does that start? It's interesting. He doesn't say praise, problem, promise. He says problem, 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 and then he gives a promise. Does anybody remember last week? What was the difference last week between this door and what it is now? Anybody remember? Last week it was open because he told the church of Philadelphia, I have opened a door of grace for you no one can shut. So he was using the imagery of a door in a totally different way. I've opened this door, no one can shut it. But in this one, he says to the Laodiceans, he says, I stand at the doorway of your soul and I'm knocking. I am so close to you and yet so far. And you have the capacity, Laodiceans, Southbrook, you have the capacity to open the door. It's real interesting. He says, I stand at the door and knock. Now, in that day, in that culture, there were two ways that you would answer a door. If it were a voice of a friend that you heard, your servant wouldn't answer the door. They would say, hey, I'm here. It's Joe. And you would go and open the door and let them in. If it was someone you didn't recognize, the servant would open the door. And Jesus says, here, I'm your friend. I'm on your side. I'm here to resource your life. I'm here to make the best come out of you. I am your friend. And he says, I stand at the door. And if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in. And I will not just be a resident. I will be the president. And he doesn't say, I will go through the drive through window with you where you can get a little bit of God to go. You know, he doesn't say that. He says this. He says, I will come in and I will eat supper with you. We're going to do a five-course meal. We're going for the long haul. Now, many of you know that Revelation 3.20, it was the inspiration for one of the most famous paintings about Jesus. Because what's the other detail about this door that's different than last week? Has anybody noticed the other detail? There's no doorknob. Look at this. Look at this. This this is the, one of the most famous paintings about Jesus. I call it the Caucasian good-looking GQ Jesus uh, painting. You know, it's just like, oh, there's blue-eyed Caucasian Jesus. Don't we all? It's funny because people think Jesus looked like Brad Pitt. Jesus looked more like Osama bin Laden, and that freaks people out when you tell them that, but he was a Middle Eastern Jew. I tell you, burst your bubble. But look at that painting. Show that painting again, gang. The detail that many people missed for years on this painting was that there's no 
doorknob on the outside. It can only be opened from the inside. That he stands at the door and he knocks, but he's not going to bust in. You have to, every day of your life, open the door and say, come in. I want you to be the president, not just the resident. I thought about writing a letter to Southbrook. So I'm not going to do that because I don't have time. But if Jesus were to say to the church at Southbrook, to the angel of the church at Southbrook, write this, what would he write? What I think he would write to us is I think he would say this. I, look at these words. Somebody wrote this. I don't, know who, I don't know who wrote this. I would like to buy $3 worth of God, please. Not enough to explode my soul and disturb my sleep, but just enough to equal a cup of warm milk or a snooze in the sunshine. I don't want enough of him to make me love a person of another race or pick beats with a migrant. I want ecstasy, but not transformation. I want the warmth of the womb, but not the new birth. I want a pound of the eternal in a paper sack. Yes, I would like $3 worth of God, please. And I can live my life so easily where I don't need God. And I need Jesus to rebuke me. And here's what I love about Jesus. I love how he rebukes. He doesn't shame he just said, I mean, you hear, if you, if you walk with him, you'll hear his voice say, this is not acceptable. We're going to work this out. We're going to turn from this. So here's what I want you to do. Southbrook, I'm going to ask you, long as you need, but to sit and let him in this morning. When I pray, just sit and envision the doorway of your soul opening and say, Jesus, come in and renovate. There's a famous story of Martin Luther, the Reformationist, where he said he had a dream that he saw Jesus walking up his sidewalk to his front door, and he turned around, and his house was a complete mess. And as Jesus was walking up, he's trying to straighten out the house. He's trying to straighten out the house, and it's frustrating because, you know, how dreams work. Like, he was straightening out the house, and it was getting messier. And finally, Jesus is knocking on the door, and he goes to the door, and he just says, I can't, I, and he opens the door, and he lets Jesus in. When he turns around, the house is set in order. But he wants to come in, and he wants to take charge of your pornography addiction that you know is controlling you, of your compulsions, of your bitterness and your anger. And would you sit this morning and hear his voice, and let him in your pain. And that'll produce a passion that keeps you in orbit for a long time. Right? Amen? Southbrook, it's time. Right? It's time for us to be 100% in to letting Jesus live through us. And then when we, we wake up tomorrow morning, we love him with all of our very imperfect hearts, souls, minds, and strength, and we love our neighbor as we love ourselves. It is game on. And if you do that, I don't think he'll write a letter to you saying, uh, you're not all in. I think he'll look at you one day and say, well done. Well done. Good and faithful servant.
As it starts today, right? Let's bow. So Father, now we have this chance. I love the way we do communion because it's about relationship. We can do this with our spouse. We can do it with our friends, our small group. But now as Southbrook sits and all over the room, soul doors are opening up. We will dine with you. That as we take communion today, it is a representation that we don't just want three pounds of Jesus in the drive through window, but we want you. You said, I will come in and eat with you, but you're going to eat with me. I'm not just the guest. I'm the host of your soul. I'm so inadequate to teach this lesson today. There are so many preachers who could fire people up more for this text than I could ever do in my best, but let alone when I'm not at my best. May your spirit speak into that guy here today who is so close and yet so far. May your spirit, Jesus, speak into that gal here today who is so close and yet so far and that that door has to open up today and tomorrow and the next day and the next day and the next day until we say with Paul, Christ lives in me and the life I live in the body, I no longer live myself, but Christ lives in me and I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. As we're sitting being quiet, we open our doors. Through the powerful character of Jesus, we come to you. And everyone said, amen, amen.